This is the Story Power Marketing Show with Tom Ruich. Make yourself comfortable and fasten your seatbelt. Tom and his guests are about to share powerful stories, trade business building insights, and have a few laughs. Tom created this podcast to help you captivate prospects and inspire them to act so you can get more clients quickly and easily. That's what powerful storytelling is all about. That's what this podcast is all about. So let's get this party started. Here's your host, Tom Ruich. Hello and welcome to the Story Power Marketing Show. My name is Tom Ruich, and today's episode is called How to Nurture Lasting Love with Your Spouse and Your Clients. As always, I'm going to share a brief story before I introduce today's guests. The year was 1991. I was a 25-year-old single guy living in Washington, D.C., looking for love in all the wrong places. My latest crush was Lily. She was a smart, green-eyed beauty who enjoyed having many guys compete for her affection. I was tired of being one of many, but I was still hanging around. On the night in question, I was at her apartment along with her roommates and other friends. One of the roommates was Melissa, my high school friend from St. Louis. Three years later, she would be my wife. I'll get to that in a moment. Lily and friends decided we should play Fictionary. That's a game where one person chooses a random word none of us know. Everyone makes up a definition for that word and jots it on a sheet of paper. The person who chose the word reads aloud the fake definitions plus the dictionary definition without revealing which one is real. Then each person votes for the definition they think is the real one. You get one point if you vote for the real definition. You also get a point when someone votes for your fake definition. We were a few rounds into the game, and the next word was cough, C-O-F-F. It's a verb derived from Middle English and Scottish, and it means to buy. We all wrote our fake definitions. I said cough is a noun, a farm implement, similar to a scythe used to cut grasses and wheat. I figured that might get some votes. Our friend Amy started to read the definitions. None struck me as the real deal. And then Amy read this, cough, a casket for short people. The room fell silent as it sunk in. C-O-F-F, a casket for short people. And then I broke the silence with laughter. Not a polite giggle. No, this was a full-on belly laugh. And as I wiped the laughter tears from my eyes, I looked across the table and spotted Melissa. She was blushing, and she was smiling, and she was staring at her shoes because she did not want to give herself away. But I knew this was her joke. And right then, I also knew she was the one. A few days later, I summoned the courage to tell her how I felt. And when I did that, I told her how much I appreciated her sense of humor. We were a couple soon after. Three years later, we married. And 28 years later, here I sit, happily married, 
telling you about Melissa and her silly, belly laugh-inducing sense of humor. But there's a wrinkle to this story, a reason I share it with you today. Last month, thanks to today's guests, it occurred to me that it's been a long, long time since I told Melissa how much I appreciate her sense of humor. It's one of countless things I appreciate about her, but I don't say it out loud. In the book they recently published, my guests reminded me appreciation is not something you dish out just in the courting phase. It's not something you say once and then stick on a shelf next to the wedding album to collect dust. Marriage is not a state of being, it's a practice. And if you wish to practice it well, you have to work at it. You have to master those things that nurture it and enable it, and enable it to flourish. Expressing appreciation consistently is one of those things. According to my guest's book, appreciation is one of the secrets to a great marriage and everlasting love. And so last month, I told Melissa how much I appreciate her sense of humor, how it always lifts my spirits, even when I'm feeling down in the dumps, and how I feel that appreciation always, even though I don't express it often enough. And since reading that book, I consistently share with Melissa little doses of appreciation that I used to keep bottled up inside of me. That book, it's called The Go-Giver Marriage, a little story about the five secrets to lasting love. The authors are John David Mann and Anna Gabriel Mann. John David Mann is co-author of more than 30 books, including four New York Times bestsellers. His classic 2008 parable, The Go-Giver, co-authored with Bob Berg, earned the 2017 Living Now Book Awards Evergreen Medal for its contribution to positive global change. Anna Gabriel Mann earned her degree in clinical psychology before going on to serve as an educator, therapist, corporate trainer, speaker, and coach. She currently coaches Go-Giver Marriage clients and leads the Go-Giver Marriage Coaches Training Program, training coaches from around the globe. John and Anna have been dreaming about writing the Go-Giver Marriage together for nearly two decades. And I've been dreaming about having John and Anna on this podcast since the day I heard they were writing this book. So John and Anna, welcome to the Story Power Marketing Show. Wow. Yeah, well, <laughs> you got a thank speechless. you so much. <laughs> uh, Dom, you do such a beautiful job of, um, I, I think we should, you should just go ahead and talk for the rest of the hour, honestly. That was just, that was brilliant. Yeah, I, I, you know, I could write a book re report. We could, we could press pause. I'll write the book report. And, and uh, at the end, you can just say thank you. But no, 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 no. This, this is uh, a awesome. great, great thrill. I really mean it. When I heard you were writing this book, in a way, I, I thought about time, um, because I've known the two of you, and I've known what a beautiful marriage you have. I also have known, though, that any book that you would write about marriage would also be a business book. That's why I called this episode something about um, lasting love with your spouse and your clients. So I think it's time for you to tell the story of how this book came to be, because that connection between counseling husband and wife and husband and husband, wife and wife, marriage, uh, married couples, 
it, it's more than that. It's it's a business book as well. So share with us the story of how this book came to be. <laughs> well, okay, I'll start. <laughs> so, um, of course, the uh, the as you said, I've written over thirty books. Anna has been the first reader for all those books. And, and I say first, not only chronological, but first in priority, because she has, she's my biggest fan um, uh, of my books. She loves the stuff I write. I love hearing that. But also she has great insight. When the book is in this early, fragile first draft stage, she, she always is able to put her finger on the things that are great and the things that don't quite work yet. And, and I need that um, as a writer. So it, it's, it's lovely. This is the first time, however, that she's come around the other side of the desk and been a co-writer with me. So this is this is in so many ways a dream come true for us. When the first rough draft of The Go-Giver, the original book, came rolling off my desktop printer in 2005, three years before it actually got published, she picked it up and she read it. And she said, this book is awesome. This book would make a great book about marriage. Because this is, this is what we do. This is like, this book is about us. Are, are we, for years, our friends had been asking us, you guys, like, what's your secret sauce? What's going on here? <laughs> why, why, why are you guys so obviously madly in love? And why do you, why do you, you come off like newlyweds, you know, years later? So, you know, this is our, this is our attempt to bottle that, bottle that secret sauce in, in a sense. But, um, you know, it's been a long journey. Anna, as you pointed out, uh, degree in clinical psychology, coaching and counseling couples and individuals for more, more fulfilling relationships, richer marriages, more successful marriages. That's been her, her life mission, um, even in, as you rightly point out, in the context of business, she's always sort of a stealth life coach. That's really, that's really her, her skill set. You know her greatest skill set. So the opportunity to to take the Go Giver lexicon and marry it with her life mission was just such a sweet opportunity for us. Yeah, I I love that, and I love the fact that the book is in two parts. The first part of the book is the parable, and for those watching or listening who are familiar with the Go Giver books, they are parables. A story, a lesson. Um, and, and so it's very familiar to all of us who know the go-giver to see that. At the end of the book, we have the practice. And I know from hearing you talk about the book that, that the parable was, was your piece, the practice was Anna's piece. So Anna, why don't you tell us how that works? What do, what do we get when we get to that second half of the book, the part called the practice? Well, first, the parable is, in my opinion, John's very best parable ever written. Mm. I mean, it's, it's just stunning. It actually has a fable packaged up inside the parable as told by a character. Right. And it's so beautiful that I cry every time I read it. And in fact, we actually recorded the audiobook for our publisher. And I had to read the end of the book. And so it was a real moment because I had to like just cool myself off and say, okay, 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 you can do this. I will not cry. 
because every time it, it it's so it's such a beautiful story every time it gets me at the end and i think that the last words of the book are some of the most important words in a relationship the very last sentence so i i, I share that and then i guess i would say that the second half of the book is is not just my contribution, it's that when John and I spent 10 years on long walks every evening talking mm-hmm. about the book, I mean, we go for four and five mile walks. We would talk about the book, we would talk about the secrets, we would talk about the psychological underpinnings of the secrets, what the opposite of the secrets are. Mm-hmm. You know, we would kind of get to all the pieces, but I said, if we don't explain it, the story is great, but unless people really study the story and take notes, they won't get it. We have to create the second half of the book to be not only a psychological explanation of what the secret is and why it works, where it comes from in your development, why it's so critical and important, and also give client stories. And I had lots of clients who were more than willing to have their names be held, but for the story to be real and told. Um, you know, it's it's such a piece of strength for this for each secret to be explained and for each opposite to be explained as well. Mm. Because as we get into talking further, you'll realize that some of the opposites are the very things that tear marriages apart. Yeah. And, and I recently launched something called the mastermind book club, where a partner and I, a guy named Ted Pedromo in San Francisco and I choose a book every month. And then what we're doing is encouraging conversation around the book focused on the idea of how can we take the lessons that we draw from this and implement them? How can we put these things to work? That word practice is what it's all about. Because if you read the book and you put it up on the shelf and you think, oh yeah, that's nice. What's the point? And so let's talk for a moment about the five secrets in the book, starting with appreciation. And if you could share a little bit about how it can be implemented, how it can be practiced. I started by telling a story about appreciation and what I've learned from the book is that you can't take that appreciation for granted, keep it bottled up inside. You have to be deliberate and habitual about expressing it. So that first secret, appreciation, let's talk more about that. Well, it is what people get habitual about because life gets busy. Mm -hmm. You have kids, you know, you're both in different jobs, possibly with a lot of stress on, you know, coming your way. Maybe you're trying to market something that you, a new business or a new idea, and that takes a whole block of time. Mm -hmm. So anyone who's out in the real world and understands social media and marketing and what it takes to succeed in any job knows that the stresses on any young couple are enormous. Now, if you add miscarriages or a sick parent or a sick child or any kind of complications to your picture, things get really rough. Mm -hmm. And the first thing to go is not only appreciation, but that goes on hold, but it's toxic opposite which is criticism comes up and people start suddenly, you know, picking at each other 
I mean, John and I call it death by a thousand cuts. Uh-huh. And it's the most damaging thing that can happen in a marriage. And it's so simple to shift it. And research shows that it isn't insight that changes it. It's behavior. Uh-huh. Do you actually practice? And love is a verb. Yep. Not a static feeling that you have. It's something that you create every day. And so we really like to teach people that appreciation is easy to smooth over. It's easy to look at it and say, oh, well, that's so obvious. Of course, my husband knows I appreciate him. Of course, my wife knows I appreciate her. But in fact, if you don't make it vocal and often, they don't know. And specific. And yeah, yeah very good point. And, and John, I've heard you talk about the four deadliest words in a marriage share those four words because it gets to honest point about the toxic opposite of appreciation yeah yes i'm i'm, I'm going to preface the the four deadliest words of marriage what a great cliffhanger this is going to be uh-huh. i'm going to preface that <laughs> with just a quick story of my own about appreciation just to kind of bounce off of yours tom i, I adored your story i know anna mm-hmm. did too it's a, such a great great story just on, in its own but also it's such a great illustration of the power of appreciation and how easy it also is to put it up on that shelf by the wedding album and let it mm-hmm. gather dust. You said that so beautifully. The very first words Anna ever spoke to me were, I loved your article in this business magazine. And um, we were sitting together in, we had met 20 years earlier at a party. And when I say met, as in quotes, because actually we saw each other across a room. It was like a Tony and Maria moment out of West Side Story. I didn't know her name and I did not learn it that night because she dashed away at midnight. Uh, she left this glass slipper on the floor. Actually, um, <laughs> she was there with somebody else. I was there with somebody else. Uh, I, I saw her across the room and I thought she was the most dazzling thing I ever saw, but we never actually met that night. Fast forward almost 25 years. We happened to be sitting next to each other um, in a business convention, and she leaned over and said, "I loved your article in this business magazine that I was I was writing at the time," and I I was just enchanted all over again. It's like I recognized her, and, I, and now she was telling me she loved my writing. She's been telling me she loves my writing ever since. Here it is now, twenty five years later after that, um, and you know for years she would tell me, you'd be a great novelist. You'd write great novels. And I would say, you know, thank you. I appreciate the vote of confidence. I didn't really believe it. And I didn't. To me, a novel seemed like a mountain that would be impossible to climb. How do you write the whole, you know, 400, 500 pages and you keep track of everything? It just seemed completely out of my grasp. But every now and then she'd just say, I really, I, I, your writing is incredible. And I think you'd make, you'd write amazing novels. And, um, and I finally did. I got my first novel published last year. Publishers Weekly called it one of the best books of 2021. And when people ask me, how do you do it? It's not me, it's her. If it weren't for her telling me how she sees me, I promise you that novel would not exist. We build each other, we build each other up. We create, we recreate our spouses every day, our partners every day. And as you rightly point out, it's not only in marriages. It's not only in, 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 in partnerships of the, of the domestic variety. It's in work colleagues. It's in business partners. It's in the people that we spend time with and 
who, who, whose opinions matter to us and our opinions matter to them. You know, we actually build them every day or tear them down. And that's yeah, the and, four and, deadliest words of marriage. That's where that comes But yeah, Before you get to those, you know, the cliffhanger is going well. Let's <laughs> keep it hanging for a second longer. Um, the, I, I've written about the fact that, that when you lose a client, when you lose a customer, there, there are countless studies that show that the primary factor is not the service or the product. It right. is that the client or customer feels as if they've been taken for granted. Yeah. They haven't been appreciated, they haven't been responsive enough or yes. reached out to them or shown them the appreciation and the attention. So this, yeah. it, 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 it's, it's essential stuff for marriages, yeah. but everything that I read in this book, you can extrapolate and apply to business, leadership, yeah. coworkers, clients, the whole thing. Now, the four deadliest words in marriage. But before we get, no, just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah. So you know, we say in the book, the four deadliest words in a marriage are, I love you, but dot, dot, dot. And that's like, I love you, but if you could just do things a little differently, I love you, but if you would just clean up the kitchen, you know, a little more often, or I love you, if you would, I love you, but if, if you would say a little less when we go to parties, or if you would speak up a little more when we go to parties, right? Or if you would lose 20 pounds, I'd be more attracted to you. Or if you would gain a little weight, you know, you, you'd, you'd look a little healthy. All the ways that we want to try to slightly remake our partner because we want them to be the way that we, we think they should be. It's all me, 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 me focused mm -hmm. is what that is. I love you, but I'd love you a little more if you were a little more like the way I think you should be, because I'm kind of in love with my own opinion. It's like, it's so easy to go to that place. It's the part of us that wants to control the universe. And, and, and that, and that, and it has forgotten to, you know, to acknowledge that they are who they are. We didn't create them. We didn't invent them. We didn't give birth to them. You know, so they, they, they it is, it's, it's the four deadliest words in marriage. It's the, the effort to control yeah, and and speaking of me, 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 the second secret is attend, and the me, me, me person is not so good at attending. Talk to us about what attend means and what the to the toxic, excuse me, what the toxic opposite. That's a hard phrase. Toxic, toxic opposite. Um, what the toxic opposite is all about. Well, first, I think we should only choose three of the five secrets to cover. Sure. Because I think that attend is a, is a powerful secret yeah. because it's, 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 again, it's a little gesture. Um, and it's, it's powerful because people want to be attended to. Mm -hmm. When you were a baby and you couldn't get across the room you had no way to make yourself a bottle of milk. And if your diaper was wet, too bad, if somebody, unless somebody changed it. You know, I mean, that is the primary moment of being attended to. And the happiest babies are the ones that are never wet, mm -hmm. always have a full tummy, get burped, and have somebody cooing at them, telling them how wonderful they are, appreciating them. 
That's right. That's and right. Attending, you know, it's so funny because in any of the early childhood literature that you read, they'll talk about the most powerful thing about early development is that if you have a mother who just actually is very nurturing and attending in all ways, that that is just, that creates the happiest babies and the most secure children. Mm -hmm. And it's such a powerful thing. So attending is just taking the opportunity to notice. It means to pay attention, to attend. Mm -hmm. Pay attention to what your partner loves and enjoys, and then give them that. So I'll give you a great example. Mm -hmm. Don brings me a cup of tea at 7 a.m. every morning on my bedside table. And I, and sometimes he brings my laptop as well, because if I've said to him the night before, I'm going to work on the slides for the workshop, or I'm going to do this in the morning, he knows. I just want to sit there and relax with that cup of tea and take in the morning. Maybe I read a little news, whatever, but I just relax with that cup of tea. I don't, you know, it's so nice because Otherwise, I'd have to get up out of that warm bed and go make it myself. It's a little gesture, but it's really powerful. And when you love being attended to, you also tend to love attending to others. So I know all his things that he loves. You know, in the afternoon, I'll bring him apples and cheese on a little plate next to his desk and a cup of green tea. And he will just be happy for the next hour. He'll munch on apples and cheese. He'll drink his green tea. And he'll just, and that will stave off his fierce pre-dinner hunger enough so that he can just get an extra 45 minutes to an hour of work done and relax and manage the things that are important to him. It's also about, attending can also be about protecting your spouse's solitude because John's a writer I really know his core times per day that he really likes to just kind of have the door shut and have space to get things done. So that's why if I drop that little plate of apples and cheese or pears and cheese and a cup of tea, then he can just chill and relax and get an hour of real, you know, tangible work. So if you do that with great regularity, your, your partner will just respond. I mean, it's really powerful. And yeah, I, I, there's so much power in what you were talking about, and, and it's so closely related to appreciate. In fact, when I was going through the exercise of quietly reflecting on all of the things that I appreciate about Melissa, it's a long list. Among the things that kept coming to the top of the list, that kept coming to mind, were the ways in which she attends to me, she knows me, she gives me my space, just as you were describing. She comes to me when she knows that I need her, uh, whether it's to, to hand me a cup of coffee or to just say, hey, how about a walk right now? And it's always the right time. And so at its heart, these two things that we've been talking about are about habitually knowing your partner, not just, not just stopping at, yeah, you know, we're married and yeah, we live together, but, but being attentive 
and getting to know what the right time is, what the right you know thing to pour in the cup would be, yeah, what the person needs. And, and go ahead. And, I was going to say exactly, and that's and the thing. And the thing is that you know when we're first together, or this is maybe going to be a stereotype, but frequently when we're first together in that flush of romance, when we're first dating, first courting, whatever you want to call it, you know, what do you do? You bring flowers, right? Or you bring chocolates, or you bring, uh, you know, a gift, or you you treat to a dinner and a movie, or all these things that these cliche things that we do when we're first dating, they're kind of like stand-ins or or mm-hmm. symbols for really giving this person what they love and what they want. And maybe we don't know them that well yet. So, you know, what are the old standbys? Uh, cards and, a, and a flowers and, a, and a chocolates. <laughs> well, maybe they don't you know, like chocolates, but the point is that as you spend time together, and this is what you're saying, you get to know them. You get to learn. You do your research. In the book, we say every individual is an undiscovered continent. You start mapping that continent. You're not just a husband or a wife or a spouse or a partner. You're Lewis and Clark. And you are going to find out all of the rivers and plains and mountains and valleys and different fauna and flora on this vast continent that is this person. And I'll tell you what, you'll never be finished because every person is such a rich treasure treasure trove. That's a hard word to say, treasure trove um, of experiences, of memories, of histories, of preferences, of wounds, of painful things, of and of needs that they that they've developed over the years that are so unique and individual to them. You don't learn these things in a matter of weeks and months. You don't even learn them all in a matter of a year or two or three. This is a continent that you need to map. There's a there's a, a situation. There's a, a little uh, story in, within the the parable of the book where a woman is talking about her first marriage. She's been married and divorced, and now she's she's married again. And she's describing in her first marriage how her husband used to always give her gold jewelry. He was he would, he would give her these gifts. It's lovely, probably expensive. She said, I, "I don't really like gold. I'm like a silver person." And she was going out. She was having a dinner with this other fellow who would later become her second husband but he, right then he was only a business partner and just as a, a souvenir of their anniversary of being in business he gave her a little a little gift and it was a little pair of silver earrings and it was probably cost you know i don't know a hundred dollars or fifty dollars i don't know what they cost they were they were little right insignificant and she burst into tears yeah because they were yeah. silver and somehow he knew how did he know he knew because it mattered to him yeah. They weren't even they weren't even a couple yet, but he cared about her as an individual and he had just observed. He'd noticed. So this this attending thing, it's not about being servile. It's not mm-hmm. about waiting on your man or waiting on your woman. It's not about being, you know, a doormat. It, it's about noticing because it matters to you. It's about observing, charting the territory of this other person. Yeah. Two things I want to mention about this. Number one. I think one of the greatest feelings that any human being can feel is the sense that they are known, they're heard, they're seen. You get me. What a feeling for a person to have. And I love the fact that you used the metaphor of the explorer and mapping because in story power marketing, what we really talk about is the story that you're telling in your business is not so much your 
own origin story, although that has an important place in your marketing. What really is important is getting down to your prospect's story mm. so that you know them, you have mapped all that territory. And so the words that you are putting out in your copy, in your website, in your sales letter, in your presentation, just say to that person's head and heart, I know you. And you're doing a job beautifully as a marketer. When the prospect thinks, wow, this, this company, this person gets me. And when you do that, you are so increasing the odds that they're going to want to say, okay, now tell me about the products and services. Now tell me what it is that you can deliver because you know what I need. And, and so that dot connecting what you just described as it applies to marriage is so critical and so beautiful as it applies to business. So aligned with what I try to bring to, to my clients and my audience. So thank you for that. Yes. And the, and the, the, the toxic behavior that's the opposite of attending is neglect. And neglect is the first cousin really the captain of ambivalence uh-huh. because when you're ambivalent in your relationship, everything's kind of on a certain smooth hold. You're not really attending and you've got a layer of denial. That's so thick that you're really not noticing the inner world of your partner. You're not really noticing much about your partner. Uh-huh. And so I say that benign neglect is a huge problem in marriages across America because people have lost their grip on what it means to attend to their partner. It isn't about being a servant or a waiter. I I use that example of cheese and apples and tea because that is one way of attending. But I'll tell you, when John's having a bad day, a whole other level of attending is not to rush in and try to say, hey, what's going on with you? Let's process this right now. That's not attending, that's invading. But attending is simpler than that. It can be just a gentle hand in the kitchen to his hand and words that like, I can see that you're having a hard day. Let me know if there's anything I can do to make your day better. And please know that even though your door is shut, I'm here if you wanna talk. That's it. Yeah, Melissa has an issue with a a tooth right now. She had a cap kind of pop off and she went and got it repaired and, and the repair didn't fully take sensitivity to hot and cold. And she is very good at suffering in silence. Mm -hmm. And after reading the book and reflecting on this, I've been much more conscious of just you know, asking, how does the tooth feel? What anything that I can do um, at the at the drugstore? Do we need to, you know, can I buy you a tube of Sensodyne? Those sorts of things. And and everyone who's listening and watching, believe me, it, it it's it's not you don't just read the book and say, well, I'm gonna be more attendant now. You, you have to be, it, it's the same things that we have to do in, in business in general and habit forming. We have to remind ourselves, we have to 
work at it for a while until it becomes muscle memory. You you referenced earlier, you know, younger couples, this or that. Um, I think so many of these le- these lessons apply to longer term, well established couples. I will I will say happily that I am happily married. 20, uh, I almost blew the map, 27 years. <laughs> under, watch the video. <laughs> 27 years under our belt. Um, and, uh, but this does not, this does not come as easily as I wish it would having read the book. It reminded me that, oh, you know, it, it's a forever process. It's a forever practice, so. Yeah, and 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 the benefits. I mean, and I hate to even use to describe it with the word benefits, but the the payoff, the juice, the the glory of it increases, grows. It isn't like pedaling to stay in place. It's I f- I find uh, you know we have this observation that a lot of couples, as you're describing, who've been married for for some time, ten years, twenty years, thirty years, and more, come to see marriage as a kind of compromise. Yeah. Like, well, if I let her get away, let her get his way. You know, we, we, we disagree about this, but, you know, you give in here so I can get some peace of mind, some, some peace and quiet. You know, it's a compromise. One of the thing, one of our goals in this book and in our work is to help people see that it's not a compromise. You, you're missing the big picture. Take a step back. It's the opposite of a compromise. It's an opportunity to become your best self, to become bigger than you were when you started, to, to not to limit the, your enjoyment of life in order to get along with somebody else, but in fact, to enjoy life more than you ever could have on your own. And, and I'll give you just a quick example. Um, you know, I believe ma- marriages are not, they're, they're, they're in strengthening and strengthening and strengthening over time, but it's not a steady line. It happens more at some times than others. In the same way that when marriages fall apart, they decline quickly in some circumstances, like mm-hmm. in, usually in crises or in the most difficult times is when they're stressed. I think our marriage has grown stronger for me in the times when things have been difficult. Mm-hmm. And in the example Anna uses of attending, if I'm feeling crummy, if I'm feeling rotten because something has just gone wrong with a book project or with a publisher or, or in my life in some other way or whatever, for whatever reason, I'm in a bad state and she'll come and say, I, 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 I can see you're, you know, you're struggling with this and I'm, and uh, let me know if you'd like to take a walk or if there's anything I can do, just as she described, she'll, she'll make herself available to me in such a way that I understand, I get that she means it. She's not just saying it to be nice. She actually means it. Like if I said, well, if you would do this and this and this, she would do it. She actually means this offer of assistance. But also that if I tell her what's going on, if I kind of unburden my heart to her, she won't judge me. She's mm-hmm. like, got my back. When I entered this marriage with Anna, I knew a lot about my external world and I was great at articulating a lot of things in my observed world. I wasn't very good at artic- articulating my internal world. When I would be feeling crummy, I wouldn't be able to say why because I didn't really know why. It's through dialogue with her in those crunch times that I've become a lot better at understanding my own internal landscape. And I become, I would say, you know, 
sort of a more emotionally mature person because I'm able to kind of partner with her in figuring stuff out. I couldn't have done that on my own. I couldn't do it on my own. She's helped me grow into a bigger person. And that's, you know, that's part of what partnerships are like. You become bigger. It's true in business. You become bigger than you were by yourself. Your customers are an opportunity for you to learn and grow, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, the better you know them, the better you go through this practice that we've been describing, the better your business becomes. Not just because they stick with you, but because they feed you. The relationship uh, is a, a, a 360 degree value. And so, yeah, it's just, it, it's just spot on what you're saying. Five secrets. Anna, you're right. Let's talk about three. You have something you want to add. I see it. Uh, I do. Yeah. This so, is my signal. <laughs> yeah, I see it. So um, bring it on and then we'll talk about whichever of the other five secrets you wish to discuss. Well, I, get, I, I lost my train on my add-on, but my oh, add-on sorry. Is, it's okay. My yeah. add-on was something to the effect that, you know, it's, it, well, I got it now. It's, it's just like with clients. What do you want the story to be of mm -hmm. your marriage? What do you want the story of your marriage? How do you want that to be told by your children, by your friends? Do you want your children when they're in their late 20s to be having a cocktail at a bar and say, oh, my parents are at it all the time. My, mm. mother's, my mother's constantly criticizing my dad. My poor dad, he's so beaten. Do you want that to be the story? Because criticism is alive and well in a lot of marriages in America. And it not only takes down a marriage slowly, as we said earlier, but it is the thing that I think leads to deep ambivalence and sort of roommate behavior, where mm -hmm. couples are 20 or 30 years in, they might have been pillars in their spiritual community or their, their direct community. They might have raised kids that have launched, but they haven't figured out how to have an intimacy between them because their story is so, so, so riddled with different negative behaviors. Mm -hmm. So. I have, a, I have a, a thought that that sparked because I think that people will hear a conversation like this one. We'll read a book like yours and the, the devil's advocate, the cynic might say, well, it's not all you know, um, it, it, it's not as as wonderful and, and happy as you might make it out to be. There's going to be conflict in a marriage. But there's there's an expression that I heard recently that I really, really loved. And I'd like you to uh, to talk about this for a second. Conflict without contempt. So, so in, in, I think we live in a world right now where the default setting is to deny all the nuance, to find conflict and cast the other in a, a with contempt, just, just me versus you. Um, but where does conflict resolution happen? How does it happen within the healthy marriage? And how do the, the secrets that you're sharing 
apply because there are disagreements, there are there are struggles. There are, and the um, the the secret that has its opposite in contempt is secret number four. Mm-hmm. But I actually want to speak to number three because that speaks more to to conflict. Mm-hmm. Okay, the third secret is called to allow, mm-hmm. and. Honestly, to allow is the, is the most difficult secret to understand, in my opinion, because it is, for better or for worse, in richer and in poorer, in sickness and in health. And it hits the sickness, the poorer, and the worse. Because allow is when life throws you a bomb and you have to catch it or else it's gonna explode in front of all of you. And, or you have to manage the bomb. Let's use something basic that happens to thousands of women across the United States every day, a miscarriage. They're trying to have a baby. It's so exciting. They're really, really excited to get pregnant. They get pregnant. They've even told 10 or 12 people, the immediate family knows, And then all of a sudden there's a miscarriage and they're both heartbroken. I mean, it's really almost impossible in this context to describe the pain because it's so deep. And yet couples often have different ways of expressing grief. And often the woman takes a lot longer to get over it. And sometimes a month or two later, the man may be in the position of, honey, come on, it's enough already. Let's keep trying. We'll, we'll get pregnant again. It's going to be okay. You know, they're, they're being the cheerleader for her to get on board with where they are, but she's not there. And the thing that happens a lot in what we call starter marriages, marriages that start maybe in their twenties, they make it 10 or 12 years and they're over. um, Is that, they just don't have awareness of the inner workings of other people around them. And they aren't curious enough to get aware. If they were attending, they'd be paying attention more and they might be figuring out some of the inner workings of, they might realize that their partner is an introvert and that they need time alone. They need that quiet time. That's how they process things. That's how they figure things out. So, you know, when you're not allowing, what it really means in a nutshell is that you're either reacting quickly and that's where the whole conflict comes in. Right. So in a conflict, if you're reacting like, like a razor's edge, you're getting triggered. You personally are getting triggered. Your emotional content is rising up, not your partner's. Your partner may have said something that triggered you. But you're the one that's now coming back with a comeback that's fast. And it can be critical. It can also be contemptuous. Those are really real facets in the middle of a fight. But the most important thing in a fight is to, stay, to recognize the separation of you versus me and to remember the us. Right. The us is the part of you that we're courting. The us is who you married, the two of you together. And we often say, and we say it in the book, there's you and me, 
And then there's the us. And we're both individuals. The us is a third entity in the room. It's the marriage itself. It's the reason you got married. And it's actually the entity, the actual emotional, living, breathing marriage energy. It's the energy that the two of you bring to the marriage. So if in the middle of a fight, all you're doing is getting defensive and reacting or stonewalling, you know, you're hitting all the behaviors that make a fight just get ripe and ready and just get really intense where it could, could relegate to shouting and screaming. The most important thing in that moment of allowing is to get it that maybe your partner had a bad day at work and they're just having a bad day and it has nothing to do with you. And to take the time to just listen, to allow is also to really listen, to give your partner space to say, I can see that you're having a hard time. I'm going to be quiet so that I can really understand what's happening for you. Tell me what's going on. And then give them the space, allow them to just really go there. And then when they're done, if possible, to reflect, to say, if I'm hearing you correctly, this is what I heard you say. And to be able to take that space, but also to say, when you're ready, I'd like to respond to what you said. Is this a good time for you to listen? Right. Because you're, you're basically allowing for the separation and individuation of the two of you in the middle of a fight. Yeah. I mean, you, you talked about ultimately it's about the us, but it's about acknowledging and allowing space for the individual and uh, allowing that somebody is going to have a different way of grieving the miscarriage than I might grieve the miscarriage, allowing that they might view some event with a different perspective than you bring to that experience. And so to your point, Anna, you have to listen. You have to be open to the nuance. And again, as with everything we've discussed today, the same exact rules and practices apply to how you interact with coworkers, your employees, your clients. The more you're able to do that, to see the nuance, to hear the perspective, to listen, the more you're able to uh, uh, build those lasting relationships. One other thing that I drew from what you said is that, yes, this book has five secrets, but this is not a cafeteria where you fill your plate with the one or two that that, uh, make sense to you and that you're going to practice. All of these connect to one another and feed one another. You can't practice allowing without attending and without appreciating. They all depend on one another. And uh, so uh, that's that's my pitch to uh, don't put down the book after you've read the second secret or the third secret, read the book to the end because you need you need it all. John, you were gonna say something. Yeah, I mean, they're all, they're all aspects of generosity and love. You know, the, the, the bottom line of the approach that, that we take in the book and in our work is 
the idea of living uh, with generosity, of approaching the other person with generosity. And what I mean by generosity is not giving people stuff, <laughs> giving gifts or giving money or giving, but, but of having a generous spirit mm-hmm. as in, let me find out what's going on with you. Let me see how I can listen to you, how I can support you, how I can serve you. You know, you asked about conflict and contempt. And one of the things that happens with, with, with a contemptuous conflict is that people do this thing where they attack the other person in a broad sense, in a categorical sense. You know, you see this in our political discourse, of course. You see this in social media, of course. But you see it in interpersonal reaction, in, in interpersonal, uh, you know, interactions, too. It's like it, we use the example of in, in marriage or in relationships of the phrase, well, you always do that. Or you never do. You never pick up your socks. You always leave a mess. Well, when you say you always leave a mess, you've you've left the territory of I'm annoyed at this particular mess today to this is how you are. I am condemning you as a person because this is the way you always behave. And once you step over into that kind of here's how you are summary, it's like you're no longer having a conflict. Now you've engaged in a warfare. And, you know, you're bombing the other person. And that's very difficult to recover from. That takes a lot. That really wounds. It really hurts. And we slip into that way, way, way too easily. As parents with children, the phrase often comes out, what's wrong with you? Uh-huh. And when a mom or a dad gets, gets just at the end of their rope because the kid is driving them nuts, and they say, would you please stop it? Billy, stop it. Please stop it. What is wrong with you? Yeah. Well, what is wrong with you is like saying, you're flawed. You're a terrible human being. How, how, how do you come back to that? You don't. Right. You get, you're scarred. So whether it's in relationships or whether it's with children or whether it's in business relationships, that kind of categorical denunciation of the other person, it's often not even meant with evil intent. It's just frustration usually. Got to be careful with that because our word our words do wound. Yeah, I uh, amen, amen. So and the, and the way to, and the way to get around that, by the way, is to keep it to keep it specific and keep it about yourself. Here right. is how I'm feeling. I'm having a struggle right now. Yeah, and and uh, as parents, Melissa and I have been through this with our children, where we had to be much more conscious than we first were of being able to articulate that we do not like this behavior. Let's talk about, you know, there's the line between bad behavior and you are a bad person. Yeah. One that parents and spouses have often have a very difficult time treading. It's exactly what you're talking about, John. You have to be very, very conscious of it. And and the beauty of it, back to my point about how all of these things interconnect, it becomes easier and it becomes part of muscle memory if you're practicing appreciation on a regular basis. Well, right. of course, I appreciate you. Of course, I think you're a good person. I, I, I'm doing, I'm, I'm practicing that every day. So that leaves room for the disagreement uh, for the conflict not to become one about identity bombing and one about there's a conflict, we'll resolve it. And that again applies in business as well as in the marriage. Absolutely, without a doubt. In fact, 
I think fair fighting is, is a huge, huge moment when couples can get to the place where, um, you know, and I'll, I'll use the term flooding because often there's at least one person in a couple who emotionally floods when conflict comes up because it raises some emotional experience from their childhood where maybe their alcoholic father used to go crazy and yell. And when he did, they, everyone would cower and hide and try to get out of his way. So that one person who's flooding can't even cope in the, in the moment emotionally, let alone answer your questions or engage. So sometimes the most important thing to allow is to allow for us to, okay, I, I heard you. I heard you say this, and I need to take a walk around the block, take a breath. Can we come back to this conversation in an hour or maybe at four o'clock? Or, you know, to be very specific that you're not trying to avoid it or drop it, but that you need to go have a cup of tea and take a walk or do something that allows you some space to breathe and to think and to process. Because when people are flooded, their, their adrenals are rushing adrenaline out and they cannot process emotionally. Every system in their body has shut down. So they're just in defensive mode at that point. And that's a whole other component to allow is that um, if you can give each other the space to process, then it won't relegate to defensiveness and stonewalling and all the classic behaviors of fights. Yeah. And and in those encounters, what will often happen is the person who is in the emotional state isn't at a place where they can sort it out. And the other person just wants to put forward the rational argument. Here, here are the points I need to make. Well, it's, it's rationality and emotion, you know, and uh, they're, the, the connection's not going to happen. So your, your example, let's put this away. Let's talk about this in a few minutes, whether you're the person in the emotional flooded state who recognizes in yourself that you need to do that or the spouse allowing for the fact that, well, there's been a, an emotional response and now is not the time to try to fight through this. I, uh, there, you know, we, we, could, we could go on for three hours but we've gone uh, almost an hour. And, uh, and that is, uh, that's what I promised my folks who tune into this thing that we're going to do. So uh, we, we, have to, we have to stop the conversation shortly. But before we do that, I want to ask you, where can people find you? We've heard about workshops. We've heard about coaching programs. There's a lot coming behind this book. And I want people to find you if they're looking for you. Oop, John. Muted. Sorry, I did the uh, I did the, the modern disease of muting myself. Yeah, yeah, everything we're doing is at our website, which is simply gogivermarriage.com. All one word, gogivermarriage.com. Yep. And um, there's you'll see the book there. You'll see a little bit about us, excerpt from the book. There's links where you can buy the book there. And there are some free gifts that we that we put together for people who do buy through the website. But there's also a programs page uh, with our workshop, which is a live via Zoom workshop we do with small groups, 10, 20, 30 people, um, where we we go into the five secrets and also the five toxic behaviors in depth. And uh, then 
then go interactive and actually take questions and, and, and talk with the people about applying it in our own lives. So we do that workshop, you know, roughly once a month. It comes up regularly. We've got one coming up and we'll have one every month if people want to, to check that out. There's also this coaching program you, you mentioned, which is uh, starting in the fall where we'll be training people in being go-giver marriage coaches, which is not the same thing as a marriage counselor or a marriage therapist. The approach, and, and you'll know this when you read the book, the, the approach that, that Anna uses is, um, is the basis of what we do, which is working with one person at a time. We don't put couples in a room, uh, we, which is what Anna has, has done in the past. But what, what we do is we put one person in the room and do just coaching. The idea there is when you work, go to work on your marriage, you don't work on your marriage, you work on yourself. It's about how are you implementing these positive behaviors? How are you dealing with the, these, these toxic issues that come up? What's your approach? What's your practice? And helping you, you develop those muscles and that muscle memory you talk about. Um, so people who want to coach that work will be trained and certified in a program that we're launching in the fall. Beautiful. Beautiful. And, and we are also taking that workshop out to groups all over the country. So that workshop is, has been, um, it's been successful. People like it. They get, they get a lot from it because it's real in-depth dive into the entire content of the book. So um, that's been, is something that we're excited about. We're taking it out to larger groups around the country um, to really expose what it is that takes down a marriage and what it is that really builds a marriage. And it really is behavioral. Yeah, and the, the point that John was making about work on yourself, there again is one of those marriage lessons that applies to business when you're feeling like uh, the client just doesn't get it, the prospect didn't understand, I'm having a problem with the coworker. The first place to start is to look at yourself and, you know, are you are you doing those things that can strengthen a relationship? Because oftentimes it's not the case. Oftentimes you need to put in some of that work. So get this book, everyone. And, uh, and if you've not read the Go-Giver, uh, the other Go-Giver books, um, I've recommended them before. You've heard me talk about them on this podcast and in my emails, but the whole collection, they're quick reads, they're wonderful books. Start with the marriage. You don't have to know the, the, the start with the go-giver marriage. You don't have to know the other books to have this book work. But after you've read this book and loved it, go back and, and read the, uh, the other four go-giver books by John and his, his uh, co-writer, Bob Berg. And uh, Anna, John, any parting thoughts before we go? I have one. Yeah. Remember, your marriage is a story. It's a story that your children are absorbing every day. It's a story that your friends and neighbors actually hold, whether they ever share it verbally or not. They all have an opinion about the story of your marriage. And so you can change the story. It's never too late to make a tweak to the story and to make an adjustment. And it's all about you, not about them. John? 
don't know what I can add to that. That's awesome. I mean, I, you know, all I know about stories is that they, is that there are things that you continually rewrite, rewrite and revise and revise and revise. And you're doing that every day with your story. Yeah. Amen. Anna, John, thank you so much. I wish we could just keep going and going and going because uh, I feel like we're just getting started, but uh, <laughs> But uh, let's let everybody just get into the book and begin their own journey and begin to work on their own story as it relates to the relationships in their marriage and in their business. So thank you, John. Thank you, Anna. We'll see you down the road. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Uh, so, much, so much to do. I hope this rates in the that hour goes fast. I never saw the record gut button go on in the beginning. Oh, it went on. It was on. Oh, it did? Yeah, it was on before I actually even before I when when I first logged on, I saw it go on. Oh okay. you, you made me a little panicky, Anna. I yep. almost yep. said something. And the thing recording I right to now. Say, the thing I wanted to say after you told your story, yeah. John had said something, and then I wanted to add something, but then as soon as we got going and you asked a question, I was like, no, no, I'm not going to add this now. I want to tell you, if you've never listened to Kelly Corrigan, wonders, go listen to an episode. It doesn't matter what episode, but particularly the late, the two latest episodes are with Jen Hatmaker. Mm -hmm. Jen Hatmaker was a, a young woman raised in a Christian circles. She got married at 19 to the, to the guy, the first guy that she fell in love with at a Christian college. And because that was the approved behavior by Christian families, that's what she did. Mm -hmm. So 26 years later, the, she's a social media maven. She's written multiple books. She has a massive podcast and following. And she got divorced. Her husband just killed it. He just ended the marriage. And it came as a surprise to her. And the whole Christian community crunched on her. So mm. the reason I mentioned Kelly Corrigan is this. Right smack in the middle of every episode, she is a writer. She has written three books now. Um, her first was a um, memoir called The Middle Place, and The Middle Place is a brilliant book. She's a it's, hugely, uh, you know, lauded yeah, writer. She's huge. She has, and she has millions of fo people following her podcast. But right smack in the middle of every episode, she reads a short essay. Mm -hmm. And her essays are as good as yours. Oh, your essay well, was brilliant. Oh, well, thank you. I just wanted to say you should go listen to her this last episode where she talks about the, the essays that she reads in the middle, which are really profound. Good. And yeah. she has her guests, if they write at all, they write an essay and they read them in the middle of the episode. Mm. And oh. she has this soft little music that plays in the background while this essay reads. It's incredibly powerfully produced, yeah. but it is the writing is why I listen. I listen for the story she tells in the essay, yeah. because the thing that got me about John's little blog posts and essays that he was, he was writing the last word for upline magazine. Yeah. And the last word was like a story in 700 words that would blow your freaking mind well, I, I have your book uh um the zen of mlm i think yeah. it's a beautiful book and yeah. it, it's not about mlm it's about mlm yeah. but it's not yeah. about mlm it's yeah. not about yeah. mlm it's about little yeah. stories of life and how how mlm 
inner inner wines, but whatever. I mean, I loved his, I mean, he has so many great stories in there, but that's why I leaned over to him because his stories were blowing my mind. Little essays in a nutshell are so powerful. I was just dying to just jump in and say, oh my God, this is like being in the middle of Kelly Corrigan. I mean, that was a brilliant story. Thank you. Really, really so sweet. My gosh. Yeah. That's the only reason I tuned to her. I tuned for the essays. Yeah. I, uh, I'm really heartened to hear you say it because um, I sometimes I feel when I'm droning on for four or five minutes before I even give the guest a chance to open their mouth that um, some of them are sitting there thinking, you know, hey, what's going on here? But, when, when do I get to talk? Yeah, but, <laughs> no. but hey, it, 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 it's, it's my oh, show. And yeah. what I really am trying to do is cue up the conversation and put it in context. But, yeah. but they're... Well, you um, sure did that in spades. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, and, you know, the, the, um, the thing that I had this roughly conceived to do it this way, and then the thing that really put me over the top on this was when somebody recommended that I listen to Mike Rowe's podcast. And, you know, and I had pictured Mike Rowe as a, just the guy, the dirtiest job guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Ford television ads with the trucker's cap and the whole right. bit. Mike Rowe, interestingly, is a classically trained, he was trained as an um, opera singer, um, never made it. Um, but he's a he's a Renaissance man, and um, he is a beautiful, beautiful writer. And he has this podcast where he tells, and his stories are ten or fifteen minutes, where he tells a a story, and that becomes the thematic hook. Wow! Or usually, what's just a conversation between him and his his co-host yeah he doesn't usually have guests sometimes he does um but this idea that yeah you oh, know lead in with a good story get them fired up and i i believe when i do it well i'm doing my guests a favor that's well we certainly I think felt that so. way i Boy, think so no, because he... the way you tie it back to stories and stories in business is so powerful and that's why i kept going back to the story of your marriage yeah. Because we have close friends that we adore. I mean, we adore these people. Yeah. But they both drink every day. Mm-hmm. And we have an opinion about their marriage right. based on that. And right. based on the way that they, you know, kind of push it on us when we're with them. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's not that we object to having a glass of wine now and then. It's just not a regular item for us. Right. And we have an opinion about what it means if it is a regular it's item. It's filling, it's filling a void. It's, it's, yeah, there, yeah, there it's, are... a, it's a whole way of being in your own state of denial. Yeah. But, but you know, they call us the lovebirds. Mm-hmm. That's their story about us. Mm-hmm. And it just made me, as you were saying all this stuff, I was thinking, wow, yeah, story. I mean, your kids have got a story about your marriage. I mean, my, my daughter refers to both her parents because we have different marriages now. And she calls them the always looking for what you're doing wrong crowd mm-hmm. because she think, finds them to be the most critical. She said, I'm 32 years old and they still can't wait to criticize me. Yeah. 
And us, she calls us a combination of the lovebirds, my real parents, the, sweetest, the yeah. sweetest people on earth. You know, I love it. She put yeah. up a post of a picture of us and just said, I'm just so proud of these two. You know, it was like she was a little mother, you know. I mean, yeah. it's just your kids have got a story about your marriage. Yeah. Sure, it's a good yeah. one. I uh, I hope we're writing a good one. I think we're writing a good one. I Part of um, when we were talking about allowing and that line between behavior and, and identity, um, our son, Jacob, um, was diagnosed with bipolar when he was mm. 13. We struggled for mm. several years before that diagnosis. Yeah. And he, and, and he did, he did great work and, and we did great work. Um, mm. and he's, um, you know, he, he still has struggles, but he's doing really, really well, but learned you know, a lot of counseling and a lot of work learned to tread that line carefully because you spend a lot of time in relationships like that, talking to a, a young person in a highly emotional state, mm-hmm. telling them that they're wrong, they're that you're not you're not putting it this way but they're hearing you say you're wrong you're bad you're awful i don't love you um, yeah. and and i learned a lot about marriage learning how to to uh, work through that and yeah. i remember uh, that because when i visited your house you shared that that was going on it was going on when when yep. yeah yeah, yep, that was um, a while he's, ago. He's 25. So yeah. Um, Amazing, isn't it? Amazing. What year would that have been? Oh, I think, you know, I was trying to figure it out because I don't remember when you joined Zango. I joined Zango in 2004. Yeah. And so, I mean. So this is going to be more like. 2006, seven. Tw- I think it was later than that. 2008. Yeah, it. Um, I think it was more like I think it was later than that. I think it was after 2010. I'll have to. I I probably have. I don't know. I have emails floating around. Did Dixie around bring you find. in? Did Say Dixie, what? Did Dixie bring you in? Dixie brought me in. Yeah. Okay, then it came in with with Quantum, John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It was Quantum. Yeah. It was yeah. after it was 20, 20, 2013 or right. Something. Okay, yeah. so that was much later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I just remember, you know, it was a. Um, and, and I was trying to be very supportive because, you know, I grew up with a depressed mother. I had a brother who had severe learning disabilities and a processing disorder. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, a father who really was so optimistic that he believed that the, you know, Norman Vincent Peale could fix everything. Sweetheart, excuse me, sweetheart. I have to answer this. Email. I got an emergency coming. Yeah, in. and and this okay. is uh, sorry. This is way over our time on the calendar. So wonderful to do this. Thank so you. So nice to see you. And um, I'll keep you posted as we pull this together. I I don't know how many are queued up in front of you, but I want to get this live as soon as I can. Whenever it happens, we'll be grateful. Thank you so much, Tom. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Glad hey, when you. we get our place in Florida, we want the two of you to come down and visit us. And we'll play uh, Fictionary. Exactly. Yeah. We'll, play, we'll play Fictionary. I think that would be awesome. And we'll walk on the beach. 
Beautiful. All right. All right. Take care. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Story Power Marketing Show with Tom Ruich. If you liked what you heard today, visit storypowermarketing.com slash resources, where you can sign up for Tom's entertaining, informative, must-read emails, download free business-building resources, and discover other opportunities to help you harness the power of storytelling. That's storypowermarketing.com slash resources to help you captivate prospects, inspire them to act, and grow your business with greater ease and joy. Also, please remember to subscribe to the Story Power Marketing Show with Tom Ruich and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Sometimes 